open your Bibles to Ephesians. For those of you that are joining us, the last uh, several weeks, we have been uh, attempting to answer the question, what is the church? Now, that's a huge topic, and uh, so we've narrowed it down. We're talking about local congregations, not the whole church universal. And we're talking about the family nature of the local church and the attributes, at least some of them, that should be characteristic of, uh, of every local church. Those things that should um, identify us and uh, cause us to be easily recognized as being the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we began by talking about the church is a family that cares for one another. And then we talked about the church uh, being a family that forgives one another. And then the church being a family that really loves each other. Not, not just caring in the practical sense, but is really invested in one another. A, a family that um, holds one another dear to the heart. This morning, I want to focus our attention on the church as a family that prays for one another. And uh, in talking about that, you look at the letters of the New Testament, you realize that most of the letters of Scripture, well, all of them, in fact, were written to churches, to local congregations. Some of them, we don't know exactly what the target audience was. They're a little broader in scope. Hebrews would be in that category, perhaps James. Uh, but others, we have a pretty good idea because it says something like the letter to the Ephesians or the letter to the Colossians or the letter to the Galatians. So we know to whom they were written. And in all of those letters, uh, Paul, who wrote the, the, the dominant number of them, 13 and others, they talk about prayer. Uh, prayer often begins the letter. It often ends the letter. It shows up in the middle of the letter. Um, it's the writer praying for the church. It's encouraging the church to pray for uh, one another and occasionally encouraging the church to pray for the writer. Um, prayer becomes a uh, permeating focus through all of those letters. Um, prayer, I've said, is the, the one effective ministry that we can always have for one another at any time, in any place, and under any circumstances. It's the one thing we can always do that makes a difference in another person's life and makes a difference ultimately in eternity. If you don't believe that, well, there's no point in praying. Prayer is not about meditation or somehow tuning my spirit with the, the, the unifying uh, presence of the universe. A prayer is about talking to God about things that concern us, that we want Him to address, and believing, as the writer of Hebrews says, the one who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him that when I pray, God is going to hear my prayer and He's going to respond to it in some way. And because He has heard my prayer and responded, there's going to be a difference made on this planet in some respect. That God takes action 
uh, when we pray. He invites us into that work, into His work, through the process of prayer. So I want to do something this morning that um, you're going to find hard to believe at the outset, but it worked in the first service today, so I think it's going to work again. Um, I'm going to survey four books of the New Testament in five minutes. And uh, <laughs> you don't believe that, do you? <laughs> yeah, most of the time you think I'm doing well if I can survey four verses in an hour. So well, but I'm going to survey four books in five minutes. And what I really want to do is I want to focus in those books on just the, the nature of prayer, the, the verses that apply to prayer. And this is a great exercise uh, when you're doing Bible study. Uh, I kind of hold my uh, iPad, whoops, hold my iPad up here, lost it, there we go, uh, and show you what I've done here because it's something that's very easy to do. And I'm going to encourage you to do this sometime this week because I'm not going to give you all these passages. I'll tell you why in a moment. But you notice that I have some things that are underlined in orange. Well, all I did was I read through the book and every time something about prayer occurred, I underlined it. And by doing that, you can take several books or one study or like I did the first and second Thessalonian epistles. You get a sense of how that subject is being treated by the author and and you pull it all together and get kind of an overview. And that's what I want to do with us this morning. I want you to get an overview of the way that Paul prays for the churches. And I want to tell you in advance that uh, all of these churches have difficulties. They're, they're all in trouble in some way. Um, Ephesus is a, is a place of spiritual warfare. You remember when Paul uh, went to Ephesus in the book of Acts, and the uh, revival broke out, and people started getting saved, and uh, they came together, and the Scripture says they brought all of their amulets and charms and magic books and occult paraphernalia, all those things that they had been using to contact uh, and work with demonic spirits, they repented of that and they brought all that garbage together and they created a pile, and a bonfire, and set it on fire and burned it up. And uh, the comment is made that, that the, the value of that bonfire of junk was worth 50,000 days' wages. So here's a church that was born out of the occult, and it was steeped in witchcraft and demonism. And, and they were a church that were, were, it was constantly on the edge of spiritual warfare and spiritual, spiritual battle. Paul has some things in mind for them. The Thessalonians, when they came to Christ, um, they began to be persecuted by the people around them, their friends and neighbors and their family. They underwent tremendous persecution. Some of them lost their businesses because people um, would refuse to do business with them anymore. Some of them lost their families because they were ostracized and thrown out of the family and disowned. Uh, others of them had trouble in their marriages because one partner became a Christian and the other didn't. And now there was a disparity there. And all of those kinds of things began to happen. And, and, and those are... Uh, real, just like today, those are real problems. If you own a business and you go bankrupt because you run out of customers, you've got issues. You've got things you're facing. And so the question becomes, 
how does Paul pray for people like this? And how does he encourage them to pray for one another? So what I want you to do, rather than worrying about the chapter and verse, because you can go back and find it if you underline all those things as, they, as you come upon them, I want you to listen to the prayers. I want you to listen to what he has to say about prayer. And we're going to just go quickly through the references to prayer in Ephesians, First and Second Thessalonians, and James. And listen to the kinds of things that Paul prays for people in the heat of battle, in the midst of spiritual warfare, in financial disaster, in family catastrophe, in relationship fractures. Listen to how Paul prays for them. First of all, in Ephesians 1.15, 1.16, last reference I'm giving you, do not cease, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the true knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of His might? Later he prays, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Wow. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus and to all generations forever and ever. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, seeking, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I can speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now to the Thessalonians. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the presence of God our Father. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, 
but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying earnestly that we may see your face and complete what's lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He can establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and He will bring it to pass. Brothers, pray for us. To this end, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and Jesus Christ our Lord. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did with you and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. And finally, in James. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven here and there by and tossed by the wind. That man should not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. You're envious and you can't get what you want. So you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives that you can spend it on your own pleasure. You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? 
then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sin, they'll be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you can be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured forth rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, as you listened to those prayers, for people who were in trouble, in spiritual warfare, in financial disaster, in family problems, in marital difficulties, in great distress of one kind or another. What, what is the theme that kind of rises to the surface and, and permeates all of those prayers in the majority? It's interesting that while Paul does not ignore the very practical and basic needs of the people, the predominant thing that he prays for is that their trials will result in a stronger faith and bold courage in following Christ. The thing that is uppermost in Paul's mind as he prays is that the trials and stresses and pressures of life will not undermine the faith and stability that they have in the Lord, but instead that they will grow. That they will become stronger in Christ. That the trials will not be their undoing, but their very making. That they will be the crucible through which their lives are refined, so that they begin to reflect and magnify His glory. Now, I have to ask the question, because a few weeks ago we talked about the church is a family that cares for one another. And I talked about the fact that we have a responsibility to, to, to look out for each other, to come alongside, to be an encouragement, to nurture one another. In fact, John puts it this way. He says, if you have this, this world's goods and your brother comes to your door and has a need and you say to him, Oh, my brother, depart, be warmed and filled, go in peace, the Lord be with you. And you do nothing to alleviate his need. He says, how does the love of God possibly dwell in you? How can you do that? How can you just dismiss that person? If you're able to rise to the occasion. And so, the, the, the point is that we have a responsibility to look out for each other, to minister to one another in very, very practical ways. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that in the church, the primary goal is always that we grow up in Jesus Christ. That we become more like Him. That we we reflect Him more clearly. That we exalt Him more wonderfully that people see Him in us. The most important thing in the world is that unbelievers come to know the Savior. And they do that when the church looks and acts like the church. 
people will know that you're my disciples when they see how much you love each other. And this will motivate them and stimulate them to say, what is it about you people that is so wonderful? I want to be part of that group. Well, you have to meet Jesus Christ. He's the reason our lives have been changed. That His very presence among us should be the thing that draws people to us and to Him. And so... The first objective that we have, without neglecting the practical, specific needs, the first objective that we have is to encourage one another to be more like Christ in His fullness. Our need to care for one another in practical ways um, does not supersede the importance of pointing one another to Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes, and, and if Romans 8.28 is true, and it is true, by the way, <laughs> you know, there, there are if-then statements in, in, in the Scripture, and uh, that was one of my lessons in, in uh, why are you laughing at me? I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> This is one of the lessons that, that I learned was conditional sentences in the Greek New Testament. The if-then, and, and sometimes uh, an if-then sentence is raised that should actually be translated since. Since then? Well, if Romans 8.28 is true, well, since it is, you know, obviously true, then we need to recognize, and you're familiar with it, right? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. If that is true, and it is, every cloud does have a silver lining. Every trial... As the hymn goes, is traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. Friends, there's one thing you can't escape. I don't recommend that you bring this to anyone's attention when they're in the throes of, of, of heartache and pain. There's, there needs to be a little distance. But here's the biblical truth. Nothing touches our lives that God has not passed through the filter and allowed. Nothing touches our lives. I know that because the Scripture also says God will not allow us to be tempted or tried beyond what we're able to bear. But every time we are tried and tested, He will make a way of escape that we can endure it. Now, if that is true, and it is, then God filters the things the devil would like to throw at us. So that nothing will come against us that will undo us, that we cannot deal with. And everything that comes our way, God purposes to work together for good. That's, that's a... 
That's a, a message that some people don't like and they don't want to hear about it, but it's absolutely true. And so God is in the middle of our circumstances. And He intends for every one of those to deepen our lives, to beautify us, to make us more solid, more sure, more Christ-like. Like the refiner's fire that burns the dross off of the gold. You've heard the story that, that the way the refiner knows that the gold is ready to be uh, fashioned into something beautiful uh, in its purity is when he can see his reflection clearly in the surface. All the dross is gone. And when God's reflection is clearly mirrored in our lives, we are the, the, the jewel that He has been working on. We are that object that reflects His glory and shines forth His character. And God's determined to make us look like Himself. That's what He's after, that we can bear the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. And so, what is the goal of praying for one another? That we won't miss it. That we won't get overwhelmed in the struggle. That we won't fail the test. That we won't get bogged down and discouraged and give up. But to pray for one another and to lift one another up that God would encourage us and stimulate us and make His love known to us and begin to work in our lives so that, as the writer of Hebrews says, that root of bitterness won't spring up. Why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything to have this happen. Oh, why is God treating me like this? And all of a sudden, we be just begin vomiting all over everybody. And people run when they see us coming. That's not God's desire for us. His desire is that we reflect His glory. So how do we pray for one another? We pray for that encouragement. We pray for that blessing. We pray for His presence. We, we pray for His comfort. Do you remember Paul praying for their comfort? We pray that they will have the knowledge, the, the illuminated understanding, so that they can know the hope of their calling. Do you know where you're going? Do you know, what, do you know who you are? That, that they can experience the riches of His glory, of His inheritance in the saints. You know what Christ has given you through His death and resurrection? That we can experience the surpassing greatness of His power. Mike and Charlotte just returned from a month in, in Israel in the West Bank, and they were uh, listening to our missionary in the West Bank talk about an experience that he had in a prayer meeting with a men's group one night as some men gathered to pray. And one man shared his testimony, how he had uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ, how Christ had revealed himself to him and how he had been encouraged to follow Christ and he had become a believer and he had fallen in love with the Lord and with the Scriptures and he was confident of his home in heaven. 
And, uh, and as he made his, that commitment to Christ, his family rejected him. They threw him out. His brothers vowed to kill him. And so he was sharing this testimony in the group, and, and the men began to pray, and they were all praying for him. You know what they were praying? It sounded like a lot, a lot like the way we pray. These are fellow Muslim converts to Christianity. Lord, protect him. Lord, put your angels around him. Lord, keep him safe. Lord, don't let any harm come to him. They were all praying these kinds of prayers. Isn't that how we pray? And then it came his time to pray. Not once did he ask for protection. He prayed for courage. He prayed that the threat would not stifle his bold witness. He prayed that he would be able to proclaim Jesus Christ and his love for him without fear. That he did not care whether God's purpose for him was to die and be in his presence or to live to praise his name, but that he would not lose confidence and faith in Jesus Christ when the pressure was on, that he would be bold to stand. The missionary said, every man in the room began to weep. Because they were praying for his safety, and he was praying for courage not to forsake Christ in the midst of a death threat by his family. Wow! But that's how Paul is praying. Lord, strengthen them. Make their faith bold. Even Paul recognized the the intimidation that can come chained to a Roman guard in, in house arrest and on trial for the faith. He said, pray for me that I may be given boldness to speak the gospel and not to shrink back. Pray for me that I can be faithful as I ought to be in the midst of these circumstances. That's number one. So how do we pray for each other without ceasing? I don't know if I'm about to disappoint some of you or set some of you free, but let me... Let me give uh, true confessions. Prayer is one of the most difficult things you really learn in your spiritual walk. I have to say that. And early in my Christian development, um, I was very concerned about being faithful in prayer and, and in intercession. And I read the biography of Dawson Trotman. Some of you may know who he is, but he was the founder of the Navigators and Dawson Trotman was a notebook guy. He was a scripture memory guy. Um, he was a prayerless guy. He, I mean, uh, military discipline just was the hard wiring of Dawson Trotman. I mean, he just, he just worked by the ropes, you know. He just knew how to get things done. He was a journal, he journaled and I thought, well, I'm gonna be like Dawson Trotman. And I, I was going to journal, and I was going to have my prayer list, and I invested heavily in the topical memory system, heavily for those days. And uh, so I'm carrying around my little scripture packets, and I'm praying my list, and I, you know, I'm going through all the routines. 
I will admit, I learned quite a bit of Scripture that way. But, but my prayer life suffered because people would ask me to pray for them. And I'd say, well, I'll add you to the prayer list. So my prayer list started growing. For long, it was about 200 people or so. It was pages of prayer lists. Now, how do you pray for 200 people? You know, I, I would go to the chapel early in the morning, and that we were living in Tekoa in those days, and I would go to the chapel early, about 5 o'clock. Nobody was around. The chapel was always unlocked. So I'd go in there and have my quiet time, and I'd get out my list, and I'd start trying to pray the list. And I only had about an hour, hour and a half. Now, how do you go through the list? Pretty soon I'm saying, <clears throat> Lord bless Tom. Take care of Paula. Lord, minister to Carol today. Uh, it's just like, it's like meaningless phrases, you know, I'm just going through the list. And I realize I'm not praying very effectively. But I didn't have time to pray lengthily for anyone, because there were other people I had to pray for, and I felt guilty if I didn't pray for everybody. But then I felt guilty because I was praying such short prayers. And then if I decided not to use the list, I felt guilty that I wasn't using the list, and I told people I'd pray for them. So all of a sudden, my whole prayer life was being consumed by guilt because I could never do anything right. And the devil was just hammering me with this. It took me quite a few years to realize, first of all, my name is Paul Martin. I am not Dawson Trotman. That, that was one of the first revelations that came to me. I'm not wired that way. Nothing against Dawson, but I, it's not who I am. And the other thing I realized is that God wanted me to have a freedom in prayer that was more dependent on the Holy Spirit and less dependent on a list. And so I, gradually he weaned me from that. But through the process, part of it was, well, just read over the list, Paul, and then pray for the people I bring to your mind. Not read over it during your quiet time, but just keep that list in mind. And when I bring them to your mind, pray for them. And eventually I learned that God wanted to be more dynamic in my life, that, that He would put people on my heart that He wanted me to pray for earnestly. And not everyone would be every day, and that was all right, because God had all of that figured out. That was His job, not mine. But I also realized that He would bring people to my mind during the day, and He would bring people to my mind at night. And sometimes I wake up in the night and I'm thinking about people. As a matter of fact, I woke up in the middle of the night last night, and uh, I was holding a grandchild who was crying, and I was praying for her. You know, I'm just praying whatever's going on. And as the Holy Spirit brings people to mind, you can pray. If you think you have to be on your knees with your hands folded and your eyes closed to pray, you're not going to get a lot of praying done. You're certainly not going to pray without ceasing because you won't get anything else done. But if you recognize that you can be in constant communion with God throughout the day, you can accomplish an amazing amount of prayer. You can pray while you're driving. You can pray while you're working, if it's just kind of rote stuff. You, you, can, you can pray whenever the Holy Spirit interrupts you and puts someone on your heart. And as you carry people in your heart because of your love for them and your investment in them, God will bring them to mind so that, as Paul said, I pray for you always. I pray for you night and day. I don't think he meant that he was 24-7 praying for the Thessalonians. I think he was saying all day and all night, throughout the day, throughout the night, God brings you to mind and I pray for you when you come to my mind. You're on my heart already. 
And I pray for you as you come to mind. We need to be praying for one another. And this takes me back to loving each other and caring for one another and being invested in one another. The more we get to know one another, the more we can pray specifically. The more I know about you, the more I can pray specifically for you. The more I can pray Scripture for you. The more God will bring to mind, you know, um, so-and-so needs this in their life, and this person needs that, and the Holy Spirit brings that to mind. You can pray it specifically. And then you begin to see God act in those ways. When I was learning to read a compass and learning about orienteering and finding my way in the wilderness, I learned that one of the things you have to do to get an accurate reading is you have to take your backpack off, you have to walk away from it six or eight feet, and then hold your compass out flat. And uh, the reason you have to do that is because your backpack has metal things and other stuff in it that can be distractive to the needle. And if you want an accurate reading, you've got to get away from any of potentially magnetic sources. And so, once you do that, it will invariably point north. It's designed that the arrow is headed north when there are no distractions. Put a magnet against the side and it's going to point to the magnet. When you take away the distraction, it points north. And when we make prayer the process of our life like breathing, as soon as the distractions are gone... The needle goes to prayer. As soon as we need direction, the needle goes to prayer. Whatever's going on, the needle goes to prayer. And so I find myself through the day, sometimes, I, do, do I need to buy this or not? And I ask the Lord, uh, you know, do I, do, should I do this or not do this? And I ask for wisdom. Well, how should I make this decision? And then the Lord brings someone to mind, and I, and I have to pray for them. The other day I called a friend of mine and as, I, as soon as he answered the phone, I knew something was wrong. I just knew the way he said hello, that there was a problem. And I said, what's wrong? He says, how do you know something's wrong? I said, I hear it in your voice. <laughs> I said, what's going on? And he told me some things that had brought some emotional stress into his life. And also, he was physically ill, and he had a task that he had to do that had to be done that day could not be postponed, and he was in bed sick, and he, and he needed to get it done. And I said, uh, brother, I will pray for you. Now, so many times, that's our Christian ease response, you know. Well, I'll pray for you. Oh, okay, what's that mean? But we finished talking, and I was driving, but I took the next several blocks to pray for him. I... He needed a touch from God, encouragement and comfort in his heart. He needed strength from God to be lifted up from his illness. He needed to be given the energy to do the task. When I saw him later on, he said, You know, I knew you prayed for me because within 30 minutes, my sickness had left. I was able to get up and do what I needed to do. And God brought me great reassurance. Prayer is powerful. It is effective. Many times what people want is not what they need. But if we are open to what God desires to do and accomplish in our lives, we need to be praying for one another. Listen, when life attacks you, 
and really rocks you and shakes you to the foundations. You need people praying for you that you won't crumble. You need people praying for you that you won't lose heart. When you're grief-stricken and overwhelmed with loss, you need people praying God's comfort into your life, God's encouragement into your life, His nearness into your life. You need to know His love for you. These are the things we need to pray for one another. You know, we can't be God for people. We can't address their deepest needs by throwing a dollar at them or having a cup of coffee with them, although that's important. But ultimately, we have to motivate one another to seek the Lord because He is the one who ultimately is our source of strength and grace and encouragement. And I encourage you this morning, we're a family. We need to pray for one another. We need to make one another the object of prayer and allow the Holy Spirit to stop whatever we're doing and bring one another to mind. And as we love each other more effectively, God will show us how to pray more specifically. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you that you love us so much. You, you know all there is to know about us. You know our need in detail and in depth. You know exactly what we need. Teach us how to love each other like you do. How to pray for one another like our Lord Jesus who ever lives to make intercession for us there at your right hand. Lord, teach us how to be partners with you in your work by taking up the ministry of prayer, which really is the only work, true work, that we can accomplish in the spiritual realm. As Armand Gesswine said once, until we have prayed, there's nothing we can do. Once we have prayed, there's nothing we cannot do. Prayer is the key. Teach us, Lord, how to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.